That was my favorite monster when I was a kid. Of all the movie monsters, that's the one I liked the most. I mean, I liked all the old movie monsters. You got the big three. You got Frankenstein, you got Dracula, and you got the Wolfman. I, Frankenstein was okay. You know, Frankenstein was Frank, but Frankenstein was always Frankenstein. It didn't matter, you know, he, he couldn't hide himself, he couldn't disguise himself, he always was Frankenstein. And as soon as people saw him, they screamed, they yelled, they ran home and grabbed their torches and pitchforks and came back, you know. And then you got Dracula, and Dracula only came out at night, and he was just so creepy. And, and then there were all the, all the women, all the girls in those, and that just, nah, that was icky, I didn't like that. But the Wolfman, that was my monster. I loved the Wolfman because you never knew who he was. By day, he could be you, he could be me, he could be anyone. But at night, when the full moon was out, he would suddenly be transformed into this vicious beast. And I remember waiting and waiting to finally see the Wolfman when it was going to be on the uh, Channel 3 afternoon movie at 3 o'clock, and, and finally it came, and I was so excited, and I got there, and I sat and watched it, and I didn't like it, because what I thought was going to be this great story about a monster ends up being the story of this man who is, it's tragic, and, and he's sad, and he's depressed, and he's under this curse, and he spends the entire movie moaning about being under this curse, and he can't be free from this curse, and he's never free to live the way he wants. He's never free to love the way that he wants. He's never free from that curse, and it just wasn't exciting as a kid. It didn't do anything for me. But as an adult, as I've stopped to think about the story, I, I realize it's really not that far from our own stories. There's a frustration that you and I live with, that we're not really the people we're supposed to be. We don't really know ourselves. We don't really know who we are or why we're here. You and I were created to walk in, in companionship with God. We were created to be His friends, to be His companions, to be His children. But then sin entered our world and entered our lives and placed us under this curse. And we spend our lives frustrated, never really fulfilling the purpose that we were created for. Now, the Bible tells us this. In fact, that's the story of the Bible. The Bible is all about creation and then the fall of sin and our eventual redemption through Christ. But there are few places where that story is played out so graphically and, and really so strangely as in the story of King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. We're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 4. Um, we're going to be looking mostly at verses 28 through 37. If you're using those Bibles in the pew in front of you, it's page 741. I'd encourage you to turn there. If you've, we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture today. And if you've got your uh, iPhone or a Android phone or a tablet of some kind, and you've got the Uversion app on that tablet, which is a great app to get, it's free. Uh, you can pull up my notes today on that, and it'll have all the Scriptures I'm using, because we're going to be looking at a lot of different Scriptures. This is about king, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar II, actually. He's the most powerful man in the world in his day, and he knew that he was the most powerful man in the world. Now, that much power can be troubling, and through the book of Daniel, we see him as a 
troubled man. We see him wrestling with his desire to serve and worship God, but he also has this desire to serve and worship himself. He is infatuated with himself. And that leads to, well, a a bizarre transformation into this hideous beast when this curse comes over him. We're going to begin the story in Daniel 4, beginning in verse 28. I just want to read from 28 to 33 first. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? And while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox for seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Well, immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew from heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Okay, you got to admit, that's a strange story. Has anyone ever heard that story before? Were you familiar with that story? No? This is new to you? Good. It's pretty strange. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, reduced to some kind of beast living in the field. Now, now what's the lesson? What's the lesson for him, but also what's the lesson for us? What is God showing us here? Well, in in a very graphic way, God is showing us that you and I, all of us, were created to bring glory to God. And when we fail to bring glory to God, We stop being who He created us to be. If you back up just a few verses, Nebuchadnezzar had had a a troubling dream. He had a lot of troubling dreams. And Daniel, the prophet, you know, Daniel can interpret dreams. And so Daniel tells him what the dream means. And in verses 24 and 25, Daniel says, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High. It is a decree of God which has come upon my Lord the King. It's come upon you that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. What do we learn from this? What's He to learn from this? That the Most High rules, that you would have no power if it weren't for God. And Daniel concludes his interpretation in verse 27 with therefore, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sin by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed so there may perhaps be a lengthening to your prosperity. If you go all the way back to Genesis, you go all the way back to the creation story, What do we see? What do we learn about ourselves in Genesis? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 
God says, let us make man in our likeness. Let us make man in our likeness and in our image. Let us make him. We've, we've struggled to comprehend what does that mean. What, what does it mean that we are made in the image of God? Well, I have ten fingers and I have ten toes. Does that mean God has ten fingers and ten toes? I, you know, I have a nose, I have ears. You know, God has a, is God up there on a big puffy cloud with a big long beard? Is that, is that what it means that, God, that we are created in the, in the image of God? Well, probably not. But what it tells us is that God chose to reveal Himself in us. So that if you wanted to know what God was like, all we have to do is look at each other through our lives, through the way that we love each other, through the way that we serve each other, through the compassion that we show, we should understand who God is. Didn't really work out that well, though, did it? Didn't really work out like that, because the very next page is we have the fall, and we fall into sin, and something is lost. And the rest of the story of history, the rest of history is the story of us trying to regain what was lost. If you leave Genesis and you go to the very next book, Exodus, in Exodus we have the giving of the Ten Commandments, right? The very first command in the Ten Commandments is, you shall not have any other gods before me. I will be honored first and foremost. You will have no other gods before me. The second command is this, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We're not to make anything into our God. We're not to make an image of our God. Whether that be a building, whether it be a beautiful building where we come to worship, where we come to glorify God, where we come to serve, but we don't worship the building. This is not a temple. This is not a sanctuary. You are the sanctuary. Whether that's an image, whether we have an image, uh, a painting or a, gla- a stained glass picture or a, uh, or a, a statue of, of our God, that is not to be worshipped. That is not something that we are to worship. Whether it would be a, a, an idol itself, we don't make those things. We do not make objects of worship. Why? Because if I... <laughs> have the audacity of believing that I can find God in this building, but I don't look for His image in you, then I have become an idolater. If I am going to find God in a building, but I won't see the image of God in someone else, then I have not understood who God is. If I find God in that image over there, but I don't see Him in you, then I am committing a sin. You and I are to bear the image of God, and we are to see the image of God in each other. We are not to see the image of God in an object that we can create. So what was Nebuchadnezzar's problem? Well, if you go back again to verse 28, all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking upon the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, and do you hear it? Is this not... The great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. You hear it? It's all about him. It's all about what he had done, about what he had built, about his own power and his own glory. And at that very moment, at that very moment, in a very real and spiritual way, 
Nebuchadnezzar stopped being human. He stopped being what God had created him and you and I to be. When he made it about himself, it stopped being about God's righteousness. It stopped being about living correctly before God. It stopped being about showing mercy to the oppressed. It stopped being about demonstrating that he was created in the image of God, and it started being all about him. And since demonstrating the image of God is exactly what we were created to do, he stopped being human. And the lesson for you and I is that when we deny what we were created for, sin disfigures us. Sin deforms us when we deny what we were created for. People always try to explain stuff. You know, they're always trying to explain things in the Bible. What, what really happened? You know, Jesus walked on water. Well, he, he probably knew where all the rocks were, right? You know, and they want to come up with reasons and things that, you know, why did this happen? Why did that happen? You know, how does Jesus able to do that? And where did all those loaves and fish come from? And so people have asked, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? What's, what's the real story about Nebuchadnezzar? And there's actually a book that you can buy. I, I found it on Amazon. Uh, you don't need to buy it, but there's a book that the title is King Nebuchadnezzar, The First Biblical Werewolf. It's the title of it. The First Biblical Werewolf. And I love that it's called The First Biblical Werewolf because you remember all the other werewolves in the Bible, right? I mean, the Bible's just chock full of werewolves. There is a psychological disorder called lycanthropy. Have you heard of lycanthropy? And it's a psych, it's a genuine, it's written up in medical journals and everything. It's a psychological disorder where people believe that they, they believe that they are werewolves and they will go through this transformation and, you know, they snarl and they growl and they let their fingernails grow long and they will bite you, you know, and they, they think that they're werewolves. But, you know, you, you read, you read the passage, verse 32 he says, you will, be made to, you will be made to eat grass like an ox. Well, uh, werewolves don't eat grass, right? Um, so what, you know, we can't really call him the first biblical werewolf. That there is another psychological disorder. And it's, again, a genuine thing written up in medical journals. There's a psychological disorder called boanthropy. Okay, now lycanthropy is when you think you're a werewolf. Boanthropy is a psychological disorder where the person who has it believes that they have been transformed into a cow. Boanthropy. So, it seems to me if we were going to write a book, we would have to say, King Nebuchadnezzar, the first biblical were-cow. He is a were-cow here. And then last night there was a full moon, so be very careful. There may have been a were-cow out there somewhere. There was a movie in 1985 called Silver Bullet. You may have seen Silver Bullet. It was a Stephen King story that was made into a movie. And it's about a werewolf in a small New England town. And, and people are suddenly going missing and their bodies are being found mangled. And so what kind of beast is doing this? What kind of animal is doing this? And, and I remember uh, watching that at, on, sitting on a couch huddled next to this girl who I would later con into marrying me. Um, and, which that was pretty good. You know, that it's a great thing to watch if you're going to sit there next to And we're sitting there huddled up watching this movie. And imagine my amazement when the hero of the story, the hero is a, is a uh, paralyzed young boy. Uh, but imagine my amazement when it turns out that the werewolf 
is none other than the preacher in town. He's the werewolf. And and when the hero of the story finds this out, he tells people, it's the preacher, he's the werewolf. No one believes him because the preacher, he's a good man, he's a godly man. He's the one who's performing the funerals for all of these victims. And, you know, no one's going to believe in Reverend Werewolf. You know, that's just not going to happen. Because it distorted what who he was and, and what he was capable of doing. That's what sin does, though. Sin distorts us. It disfigures us. And the image of God becomes unrecognizable in us. Sin distorts who we are and we no longer reflect the image of God. It distorts our values. Sin distorts our values. And we begin valuing things that are very contrary to the values that God has given us. We don't value life. We don't value holiness. We don't value sanctity. We value our own choices instead. Sin distorts us and our priorities stop being reflections of the image of God. And instead, we have very different priorities and very different choices. Sin distorts our image of ourselves and we struggle with self-image because we no longer can see the image of God in us or in other people. That sin leads to abuse, whether it's self-abuse or abusing others or abusing alcohol and drugs. It leads to depression. We lose ourselves. We lose who we are and we lose what our life was meant to be about. The Apostle Paul wrote about that. In Titus 3, verse 3, Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish. (laughs) Once we were foolish. We were once foolish. We were once disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Does that sound familiar? Do you see that still in our world today? Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we were, he says. That's what happens to the image of God in us when we no longer desire Him first, when we no longer seek Him first, we no longer give ourselves to worship. His image is distorted, and what we are, we we become unnatural. The very thing we were created to be, image bearers of the Most High, is lost. And what we're left with is unnatural, it is inhuman, it is horribly disfigured. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar's story is a lot different than ours. In fact, it's it's a dramatic portrayal of the story of all mankind. But the beautiful thing is, it's a story that ends with redemption, just as our story can end with redemption. You see, Jesus restores who we're supposed to be. Jesus restores us by grace through His righteousness. Something very unusual happens in the next part of this story, something biblically it's very unusual. You know, the the Bible is the Word of God, right? The Bible was written by godly men uh, and women. The Bible was was given to us by by God uh, through His people. And yet in the very next verse, it is Nebuchadnezzar himself who speaks. I don't know if he wrote it, I don't know if he dictated it to someone, but in the very next verse, it is not the voice of Daniel, it is not the voice of, uh, of, of the author, whoever wrote this down for Daniel, but it is the voice of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, 
And I blessed the Most High. I praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the, the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? And at the same time, at the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. And my counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. He says, I lifted my eyes to heaven, and my senses returned to me. Does that sound familiar? There are echoes of that. My reason returned to me. There are echoes of that in the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember the son sold himself? He lost all of his money, and he sold himself to a farmer, and he was taking care of the pigs. I mean, just an absolutely horrible, unholy place for him to be as a, as a young Jewish man. Uh, but he's, he was taking care of the pigs. He was feeding the pigs. He was sleeping with the pigs. He was longing to eat the things that the pigs were eating. And do you remember what the Bible says, what the story says? It says, when he returned to his senses, he became aware that he was taken care of in his father's house. He would be better treated in his father's house. When he came to his senses, there's echoes of that story, but there's also echoes of our own story. When sin distorted God's image in us, that was not the end of our story. Titus 3.3, Paul says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But that's not the end of the story. Because in the very next verse, verse 4, suddenly we have a transition. And that's not the end. Paul throws in a but in the middle of the story. And he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Even when we were lost in all of these things, even when the image of God had been that distorted in us, we were foolish, we were disobedient, we were led astray, we were slaves to sin, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Nebuchadnezzar turned his attention to God, turned his attention to the Most High, the one who was greater than he, and he praised and honored him. And the end of the story in verse 37 is, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And the end of our story is God's goodness somehow broke through. And His loving kindness was given to us. And by His grace, He has saved us. Do you remember Daniel's warning back in verse 27? He says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. 
break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. I got news for you. You don't have enough righteousness to do that. You and I, we don't have enough righteousness to save ourselves. What about mercy? Show mercy to the oppressed. That's a wonderful thing, but as merciful as you can be, you can't be merciful enough to be saved. You can't be saved by your own mercy. We can't be good enough. The only way you and I are going to make it is through Jesus, through His righteousness, through His mercy. And that's exactly what Paul says there in Titus 3. According to His own mercy, by washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, the image of God is restored in us. In another passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, all of us, all of us, with unveiled faces, are beholding the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into the same image. I love that verse because he says we are being transformed into the same image. It's a process. None of us are there yet. But as we give ourselves to Jesus, as we let him do his work in us and through us, as we begin showing other people what the mercy of God is all about and what grace is all about, we become what we were created to be. We become people who bear the image of God. I've had occasions to sit and counsel people and listen as they've told me exactly what they have done, as they have told me stories of their sin. And I have heard people say the words, I don't know what I was thinking. I have no idea what came over me. I never imagined I would be capable of doing that. And you hear that, and it's not an excuse. And it's not a, a cop-out. That's the reality of sin. It distorts who we were created to be. It's not a choice. It's not a lifestyle. It's not, this is who I am, and this is how I was made. You know, in the movie... The Wolfman. Juan Chaney Jr. spends the entire movie moping around and bemoaning this curse that he's under. And over and over again, he, he, he says, it's a curse, it's a curse. He just continues to say that through the movie. That's exactly what sin is. And, and embracing it doesn't change the fact that it's a curse. Accepting it does not change the fact that it's a curse. Adapting to it and saying, I will live according to this, does not change the fact that it's a curse. Chapter 7 of, of Romans, Paul expresses that in his own life. He says, you know, the very things that I hate, the things that I hate, I end up doing those things. The things that I know I should do, those are the things that I don't do. And Paul cries out very much like Lon Chaney, it's a curse. Paul cries out at the end of chapter 7 and says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the very next verse, I love that it's the very next verse. There's no waiting. There's no wondering. Paul says, thanks 
be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. In that beautiful chapter 8 of Romans, most popular chapter, if you're using that Version Bible app, by the way, chapter 8 of Romans gets read five times every second. Around the world somewhere, someone's reading chapter 8 of Romans. That beautiful chapter begins, verse 1, chapter 8 of Romans, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what it doesn't say? There is therefore now no sin for those who are in Christ Jesus. <laughs> Don't fool yourselves. Sin is real and you and I still sin, we still screw up, we still make those mistakes, and we're always going to have those problems between here and heaven. But there is no more condemnation. There is no more curse. The image of God has been restored in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Let's stand together and pray. Father, we have looked in your word today and we have seen one of the strangest stories ever father as strange as it was it was also way too familiar because we've been there lord we have forgotten that we were created in your image and we've allowed sin to distort us to disfigure us we have been lost we have lost the part of ourselves that made us human we abandoned that part of ourselves that made us yours But like Nebuchadnezzar, we lift our eyes to heaven like the prodigal. We come to our senses and like the amazing Savior that you are, you restore everything that sin and our own failure has stolen from us. So help us now to walk faithfully in that image. And Father, beyond just us walking in that image, help us to have eyes to see your image in others, even when they are so lost that they can't see it in themselves. And thanks be to you for your indescribable gift. And it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.